0: Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Eric Krauser, uh, joined by...
1: Nicholas Lorimer, the other co-host.
0: Yeah, we are dry crickets in a very dry thorn tree, entering the spring after the winter of our discontent, and yet...
1: Well, that's that's a big... I'm not sure what's confirm big yes, if true. That this is the end yeah of our winter of discontent <laughs> this will be, be the spring of our discontent. Yeah, yes. yeah, perhaps perhaps um and we have
0: uh finally made it to recording this podcast on a friday i think uh, for the first time in a month or two uh we've got a couple of topics to cover the first one i think we i'll just lay out the formula here Le, let, we me, let
1: about me uh before you start before we start let me yeah. uh issue a correction for last week which is we were talking a little bit about um uh, postal election in the us um i implied that the big problem there was uh volume, volume. Uh, but i have subsequently learned that really the volume of of uh, uh mail is not actually a big problem in the us system if everyone voted everyone voted via mail it would only be like about one day's worth of mail in the U.S. postal system. Um, so the bigger problem is actually accuracy, really, because lots of stories of e- even the U.S. postal system more so, you know, and you can only imagine what ours would be like um, just messing up deliveries on an enormous scale um, with some consistency. So I think that's the bigger concern is that you go to vote and then th- there's a like four percent chance that your ballot goes missing. This is not good for democracy. Anyway, no, so especially when especially
0: when states get won or lost on one percent swings
1: or half precisely. a percent swings. Yeah, precisely.
0: And to give a sense of why the uh, how could it be that like the Daily Post uh, volume is something like a hundred million units? Uh, I think it's because you've got to take into account that a lot of Americans buy a lot of their stuff by mail. Yes, so, and and this has been a bone of contention that uh, people complain that Amazon is basically making profits by sometimes relying on the U.S. Postal Service to uh, transport goods. Yep. And so you've got a state program that they think is subsidizing the a, a, you know, largest business. Uh, so the thing about ordering a toaster is that if it doesn't arrive in time or it gets sent to the wrong address or it gets broken en route, uh, you can just get a new toaster.
1: Whereas if there's a, a mess up with so, the ballot or if yep. it arrives four days late, um, <laughs> you're gonna have a very big problem. Yeah.
0: So we we do we do try to uh, check our facts here, um, and we and we encourage our listeners. This one we picked up ourselves, but you know if there's anything you disagree with, uh, maybe we're right and we need to elaborate. Maybe we're wrong and we and we need to get it right. Uh, yeah. I just want to say I got a message from one of our listeners uh, about uh, Fitzcarraldo, the Werner Herzog movie. Uh, there's a documentary that was made about the movie and the movie's about making sort of an opera in the jungle and then the documentary's about making a movie about making an opera in the jungle. So it gets very meta, but uh, our listener described it as one of his favorite uh, movie listening experiences and I have rented it out and I'll be watching it tonight. So thank you very much for that. Yeah,
1: very good news.
0: Yeah, Nicholas. So shall we talk about uh, Mother Russia?
1: Yes, which is something you know a lot more about than I do. Um I believe that the senior that's opposition true.
0: I think well, I think I just
1: like Russia more than you do. That, that that might be so. Um I uh, I believe that one of their opposition uh, figures, uh, a pretty important guy from from what I've been led to believe, uh drank some tea, uh, which appears to have had a large extra ingredient of poison and is now In a coma? Is he unconscious? I think that was the last I read about him. Mm
0: -hmm. So we're talking about Alexei Anatolyevich Navalny. Most people just know him as Navalny.
1: This is why we have you here, so that you can pronounce the Slavic names. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's why I get the big bucks. So (laughs) Navalny
0: really is a very important politician in uh, in the Russian sphere. He is effectively the leading uh, opposition to... Uh, Putin's united party but he hasn't been able to run in a long time i think he did get to
1: yeah he keeps keeps getting getting banned from every election yes yes (laughs) uh
0: so and it's it's a little bit hard to tell uh exactly why in that sometimes sometimes people get deluded into thinking that Anyone who opposes the Kremlin or opposes uh, Putin's party must be honest, uh, and so all charges must be trumped up. And of course, within Russia, uh, there's the opposite assumption is, is uh, hold sway, uh, which is that anyone who opposes must be corrupt and funded by the Europeans, by the EU or NATO, or you know some kind of foreign Something agent. Else. So I think the the sort of background context to give. So so the so the headline story of the week is that Navalny is uh, v- uh, very sickly. Uh, he is still in... He's he's in what doctors describe as a stable... T- uh, uh, what do you call it? A stable situation, uh, stable but condition. unconscious. Stable condition, but unconscious. And uh, it's not yet clear whether he'll die or not. If he does die, it's, this is going to shift the balance of forces in Russia. And if he doesn't... Mm. Uh, the balance of forces are still going to shift. The idea that he was poisoned by tea was first announced by his spokesperson uh, who said that he hadn't drunk anything else that morning. He'd been doing a tour of Siberia where he'd been trying to sort of draw attention to, uh, I suppose, criticisms of the status quo.
1: Yeah.
0: So it's very circumstantial evidence. Uh, In Anglosphere media, Uh, The presumption of guilt has been immediate and indubitable uh, that he has, in fact, been poisoned, uh, probably
1: by some isotope of a radioactive material. Which is something that that Putin's agents have done before. Um, Those guys in uh, London, and then there was someone else, a defector of some kind who also got...
0: In the Cotswolds, or in some sort of pretty little town. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the tricky thing with that is the, the Russians have had a field show with uh, presumptions of guilt that haven't been right. Uh, it just is the case that Russia, we, we've, we've, we've talked about this in the context of Iran, uh, where we've described the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as occupying a shadowy position vis-a-vis the official government, where it's not actually clear who's in charge. So sometimes when the Iranian Revolutionary Guard does something, it might be incorrect to blame the government directly, uh, because the government might not have sent any order and in fact might have preferred the you know, the, the oil well not to be uh bombed or the drone not to or be Or at least not bombed for another
1: week. <laughs> it's, right. It's more it's often the, the the factions often differ more on um uh, 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 strategy rather than, or, or, or tactics rather than the sort of overall view of the world. So, but and and it's but assassinations are notorious for this problem. Uh,
0: uh, you, you, if you hang out in an American bar in a college town uh, today, I'm pretty sure you can strike up a debate about whether Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone actor or a pansy or. Uh, a sort of willful and deliberate assistant yeah, to some kind of plot, either from the mafia or from the Marxists or from the ultra-conservatives or from the unionists.
1: Uh, uh, but a, I'm, I'm, look, look, that's not I, – I get your point, although in this particular if you look case at the I guy, think that an, an awful lot of conspiratory theories about uh, JFK are uh, to do with the fact that people were very uncomfortable in the American left that a Marxist had shot uh, – the beloved great left-wing hero of American politics. But anyway, let's not let's not open that can of worms. That's no, a no, no,
0: I'm, yeah, no. I'm not trying to get into that debate. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that it is something that people... It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, conceptually it's a, it's, open. There's a lot of
1: people out there, yeah.
0: So, so, so what I'm trying to push up again, uh, and just a South African analogy is, uh, uh, which of our prime ministers or presidents was assassinated uh, for Wurt? Um,
1: for for Wurt, yeah, for Wurt.
0: Uh, now, at the time, there were people who blamed that directly on the ANC uh and the sacp and it's and and the order didn't come from uh, the proverbial latuli house no uh but that's not to say that their agendas were particularly different so here's the point that i'm trying to make um people outside of russia tend to have this impression that everything in russia that happens
1: happens at the order of the center yeah but he's like got his fingers everywhere
0: and they sort of underestimate how big Russia is. They also underestimate how Russia really works, which is that Putin's popular precisely because most politicians in Russia are so unpopular, uh, <laughs> because there really is this very clear sense that he he gives orders that are disobeyed, uh, but but they you know they they, they like him because they think uh, without him it would be even worse. Uh, so there's there's a completely different worldview outside of Russia. Putin seems to be in perfect control inside of Russia people think the problem is putin isn't in enough control
1: uh and of course this is this is something that putin himself kind of cultivates but because that benefit that does benefit his the perception of him to be scary to the outside world and weak to his own people yeah uh but it's also the case that there are true believers
0: right there are people uh, you know every time there's a lone wolf assassination or bombing or anything like that uh, most of the way that Al Qaeda and the Taliban have worked is that you get cell groups of true believers uh, who mm. are really v- at genuine arm's length from uh, leadership. Uh, and uh, and I suppose I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, I, I am trying to raise doubts about whether Navalny was poisoned because because the evidence is circumstantial. And I'm also trying to raise doubts about whether if he was poisoned, the instruction would have come from Putin. Uh, because it's not actually clear to me that this would be good for Putin. Here's why: Navalny is. Well,
1: that was that was going to be my question. What what exactly is going on in Russia right now that would want make someone want to kill him? Okay, so here's so here's why Navalny is a threat.
0: He has established himself as, in most people's minds, the most viable alternative to the status mm. quo. If you were to ask. Who could you imagine being the next president of Russia if it wasn't Vladimir Putin or someone that Putin had chosen uh, from within the U.P.? And everyone will say Navalny. But then you ask, well, so why aren't more people voting for Navalny who are dissatisfied with the status quo? And then they'll raise a litany of problems with Navalny, part of which was that he was an oligarch, Who did make his money in a way that most Russians resent at a time when privatization, and this is another thing South Africans don't want to hear, privatization itself is not a good thing. Uh, A free market means that there's symmetrical information, it means that there's contract enforcement, and, and that's a good thing. Privatization under those circumstances is a good thing. But... That doesn't come for free. A free market is the least free thing there is. It requires an effective court system. It requires an effective police. It requires effective media, and it really, uh, at 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 the level of national assets, requires a very robust. Um, yeah, it's a it's a piece of a liberal society, process.
1: not 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 a unique part of a liberal. It's not like a a singular part that you can easily pry away. Um, despite what countries like China and stuff have attempted, it, there's still a lot of. Uh, You need a lot of other stuff to make it proper, to make it good. Yeah, to
0: make it work. And what happened in Russia is that uh, all of the large assets in Russia were sitting in, in, in the government's hands, and pretty much all of it was privatized very hastily. And America and the EU and NATO were too busy sort of congratulating themselves on winning the Cold War and too busy sort of thinking about what their approach should be to Moscow going forward, whether they should expand NATO and expand the EU to the east or uh, keep it tighter and sort of uh, uh, keep it more concentrated and let the Eastern European countries kind of fend for themselves, or to actually include Russia in a sort of grander uh, Eurasian sort of peace pact uh, to manage the privatization process well. And so you had a lot of companies that were sort of basically secretly sold or their real assets were secretly sold to a handful of connected oligarchs who would then... Uh, you know, just sit on them for a little bit and then resell them for a thousand times the price uh, without having done anything uh, and 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 make lots of money in that way. Now, Navalny was far from the worst in this environment, but it was the Wild West and Navalny was a cowboy. So a lot of people don't like how he made his money. A lot of people don't like the fact that he has cozied up to the EU, he has cozied up to NATO, he has sort of um, pushed against a geostrategic and geopolitical Uh, way of thinking about russia that um is similar ultimately to how israelis think about israel and uh and about how south koreans think about south korea as 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 a country that is sort of surrounded by antagonistic forces hostile forces which are only going to treat it right if it uh musters itself up um
1: I'm not entirely sure that that's fair about uh, South Korea. I think South Korea is a lot more complicated. They keep having these sort of sunshine governments that sort of want to make nice with their brothers over North Korea.
0: Yeah, Um, and then they keep oscillating back.
1: Yeah, Uh, because, well, let's just say that uh, if if there's a big difference between having um, even Russia as a neighbor... And North Korea as a neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you, I you. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to
0: pass judgment on whether this view is reasonable or not. Um, no, no, of course, of course, of course. Um, I'm just trying to say that it is a way that a lot of Russians think that, that Navalny sort of gone against. And the, and the last thing is that, you know, some so the corruption allegations against him, it's just not entirely clear. I mean, he certainly has received political donations and funding from oligarchs that were guilty and were in a very familiar way to a and to South Africans, sort of trying to say, no, these investigations into me by the Revenue Service or by the police course, are trumped up for political pay. reasons. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so,
0: so yes, so he, so so his allies have certainly employed the Zuma defence, including some American allies. Uh, okay, but let's not get into that kind of worms. The point is that Navalny, everyone. All Russians on the opposition side sort of think Navalny's done really good work. And, and the most threatening work that he's done, in my mind, is his expose of Medvedev's uh, corruption, of his various Nkandlas. He got drones to fly over them so that he could make a 40-minute beautiful YouTube video that was shared 16 million times in Russia in the first week, where he basically flew over this guy's various Nkandlas. And then matched that in each case to the nefarious ways in which they'd been funded, primarily by getting charity organizations to buy massive duchas, villas, uh, including one villa in Italy. And then to sort of say, well, the, this is we're buying this for the children to sh- set up an orphanage, uh, <laughs> well,
1: that's, but we haven't that's, found that's, the orphanage yet. That's a really so charming bit of scummy, scummy behavior. <laughs>
0: we're going to let the, we're gonna let <laughs> the family stay there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an injury, it it pissed off a lot of Russians, uh, and it was good work. And that's the kind of thing that Navalny can do because the quality of the film production, the quality of the investigative journalism, you know, it took a team of twenty people two years to make that
1: clip. Where's Navalny living currently? Is it in Russia?
0: So he's also been sort of uh he has been my understanding is that he has been living in Russia, uh in Moscow. And that he has a has an apartment in St. Petersburg. But Uh, In terms of now, uh, doctors have been trying to fly him out of Russia and get him into Germany, partly so that they can get evidence uh, on what his actual ailment is. The Russian doctors in Siberia say that he's been diagnosed, um, but won't say with what. And the worry (laughs) is that they might only release his body dead or alive after the poison has become impossible to detect if there was any poison in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, but, But so here's the point that I'm trying to make. I don't know that it would be so great for Putin because if Navalny dies, he becomes uh, a martyr and Russian culture is built around martyrdom. Uh, nothing could be as good, in a sense, for his political career as dying. Especially because it's 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 with his personality that people take issue. If he were to die, I think opposition politics in Russia would get a huge blow of wind, and it would open up the field for for a new person to put up their hand and say, so let me, I am the one who who you really can get behind. I was a peasant, or I was a you know product of a good Soviet family. Uh, you know, someone yeah. with a more plausible story could come along without his baggage." And I don't think Putin wants that, but I do think true believers who think of Navalny as the enemy and, and really do believe that he's a, a an EU plant, uh, they would want to kill him uh, for short sighted reasons. Putin generally so is me, very uh, long term. So I, yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if this was done by a
1: rogue agent or you know, some Chechnyan hopeful. So uh, let me uh, let, uh, let me okay. let me play devil's advocate a little bit here, um by suggesting that while as great as martyrs can be, uh without an effective leader of an opposition, they are not that useful. You know, uh, Steve Biko was a martyr, but the the Black People's Convention did not end up taking over South Africa and becoming its new government, or even necessarily becoming the the sort of, you know, ZAPO and all of its descendants were all ultimately sort of... have a figure, well, partly because they didn't have a figure that was like that. Um, Also, of course, there's always the mistake, there's always the possibility that... uh, A figure such as Putin has miscalculated. Now, I understand why why you would suggest that that's unlikely because, you know, he's a more long-term thinker and he's quite a clever politician and he understands Russia, but it's always possible. And then the third one is that there was some other piece of information uh, that Navalny was, uh, that Navalny's, cutting Navalny's life short, um, this was the best of all of his bad options. So maybe Navalny had knew something Knew that uh, Putin didn't want him to Exposed. to, to re- reveal. Yeah, and then now had to had to get rid of him now um, yeah. before that happened. Even though it wasn't a good option because the alternative was worse.
0: Correct. So I think that third option would be the best way to try and explain uh, this coming from the top. Uh, it does seem unlikely in the digital age that Navalny could have anything that wouldn't be duplicated online, but it is possible. Uh, but Steve Biko is an interesting. Points, hey, because, you know, I don't know how many South Africans think Steve Biko was. I mean, Steve Biko was killed by the apartheid police force. Uh, yeah. But I don't know anyone who seriously thinks the order came from the top. Yeah. Uh, and, and somehow when it comes to Russia, that just becomes like impossible to conceive. It becomes impossible to conceive that anything bad could happen without the order coming from the top. And that well, just do, seems I, to be like I do think,
1: uh, I do think that Putin does ha- uh, try and push that along like I said earlier uh, as much as possible because it does make him it does strengthen his hand at the bargaining table if he's like no but if Nicholas, he goes how many
0: he- people in South Africa or in the Anglosphere, in the u k or in America uh think what they think because Putin is trying to sell the line you're saying because Putin tries to convince people that he's not responsible, therefore everyone assumes he's responsible, but the people that uh he tries to convince that he's not responsible for everything are Russians. Uh, who watch his long media interviews, five-hour kind of uh, uh, public uh, engagement things every couple of months. Uh, it's out, and, 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 and inside of Russia, I'm sure there's some people inside of Russia, people on every issue debate about, you know, did this bad thing come from Putin? Did it come from the Kremlin? Did it come from yeah. lower down? Was it a rogue agent? It's outside I mean, the, of Russia, where be, I don't think Putin's, Putin's message is particularly or... important. Yes, uh, exactly. It's the criminologists, the people no, no, outside of what, Russia who what, just assume everything see? that happens is Putin's fault.
1: What is what is the public image of him in the in the West? It's like this sort of uh, stone-faced, calculating guy who's always got like a plan. And he gives up these very like uh, strong statements in uh, press releases and that kind of stuff. So people, especially the kind of people who don't delve too much into Russia, it's very easy to come to the assumption that Putin is a sort of... So, I mean, think of the meme image of what Putin looks like. He's always riding a bear or something with his shirt off. Uh, yes. This is not the kind of person who, uh, the ordinary person, if you said, oh, Putin is actually balancing on a huge pile of shifty plates that are possible to topple over at any time, and he's only barely in control of this chaotic nightmare that is the giant Russian state. Yeah, I mean, that it doesn't fit with the, the the sort of, I would say, the meme image of him, which is probably okay. how most people know him.
0: Yeah, good. So I'm busting the meme image. And there's one other way that I want to bust the meme image, which is that with uh, is the Belarusian case has obviously been a big story for the last two weeks. They've had ongoing protests after their elections. And I raised some questions about, you know, uh, about Lukashenko, about the opposition, about what the vote really looked like. Again, a lot of Anglosphere presumptions all out that
1: uh, she won 60% of the vote and Lukashenko lost all out. Um, well, look a lot not of entirely have come sure out into about the that. streets on that one um, which suggests to me that you know they what there, there, she she may well have won that election,
0: yeah, but if you look at the numbers, a lot of people is like thousands it's not hundreds of thousands
1: i'm not sure about that i I think we need to to actually check that But anyway continue continue okay, to, you to fact check up. me on that, so I
0: watched a nice interview on BBC um which was quite telling and 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 sort of fell in line with the news that I read in Russian, uh, where the BBC uh, wanted to talk about Belarusia, and, wanted, and, and, and had a bunch of English experts saying things like, you know, Putin probably rigged the election in the first place. Uh, what's he going to do? People keep protesting. He's probably going to send in the military to crush them like he did in the Donbass or in Crimea. Otherwise, if he doesn't do that, he'll probably do what he did in America, which is to get his army of bots and and genius sort of social media manipulators to turn the current of opinion (laughs) against the opposition. And the only thing you can be sure he won't do is nothing to support Lukashenko. And then they cut to an actual uh, Slav. Uh, I think the the gentleman was Hungarian, uh, which are not really Slavs, but
1: uh, uh, sort of an Eastern
0: European uh who's sort of an oxford prof who also spent some time uh in 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 the in the old eastern bloc uh doing political work and he said you know guys i need to push back on one thing which is the presumption that has been almost universally made that the opposition is that this is an that this is like the ukraine in the ukraine the political divisions was very much about are you pro moscow or are you pro brussels that was yeah. the issue uh
1: yeah, that mean, is not. They call not the protest Euro Yeah,
0: Here, this, that's really not the issue. He said, you know, he said to the BBC, "Next time you want to get some expert to come and tell you that that this that this is like that, that Putin is worried. So Belarusia and Russia have this sort of pact that they will become one country." Uh, hmm. He's like Union anyone who thinks ridiculous. yes, anyone who thinks this is about that should either find me a poll, including by the kind of opposition pollsters. Uh, That suggests that's a popular view in Belarusia. It's not. Or they should find one major opposition politician who campaigns on reneging on the United States platform. You won't find that. He was like, the thing about the ruling party is that they're pro-Russia, and the thing about the opposition is they are also pro-Russia. Where they disagree is on how the patronage network should be run. Lukashenko runs a very patronage network system where there's lots of corruption, where there's lots of regulation that chases away the few entrepreneurial businesses that they do have, where basically what people are irritated about is that their taxes are being spent and gone to lining the nests Of a few fat crats autocrats rather than to the a few fat crats who
1: are also running the country not so well
0: yeah so so the thought that so you know uh and and the case that he tried to present is like putin might be very happy
1: to see lukashenko go uh yeah uh, because lukashenko has a sort of complicated relationship with putin right every now and again he, he sucks up to Putin and then he flips and he says, no, actually, Belarus is this sort of eternal nation that will go on forever. And uh, it's completely separate from Russian. And he gives a speech in Belarusian and uh, he, you know, he talks about having cultural education for Belarusians. So, like, he's not exactly the world's most reliable uh, ally. He's not exactly a pawn. He's um he's an ally, but not a pawn. He's a he's junior not only- ally, not a pawn.
0: And I and I think perhaps I mean this is this is this uh, uh, who knows which part of this analysis is 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 the decisive factor. But he's also not a competent leader.
1: Yes, Uh, (laughs) I mean his his initial uh, way of approaching the COVID problem was to say, oh, we'll just do sauna and drink vodka. We mentioned this, I think, uh, on the Daily Friend yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, do yeah. sauna and drink vodka and everything will be fine. It doesn't exist. It's weak. You're just weak if you get sick with this, which wasn't. And so, and, so,
0: <laughs> and so here's a really good example of how weak Putin's position is. If Putin could, he would have deposed Lukashenko years ago and replaced him with a really competent pro-Russian uh, Belarusian politician. And there's plenty to choose from, but he's not yeah. that strong. He can't force that change
1: because he's scared he's also, I think scared that if he did that that things might very quickly get out of control and suddenly you do have some kind of Ukraine type situation on the hand especially um you know if you depose another country's leaders you've got to be sure that you're in control or else it can backfire on you very badly so I'm sure that's part of the equation as well
0: so anyway there there's there's, a, there's basically uh uh a, a brief take on on what's going on here. I think my position is that this looks like potentially the most heinous crime uh, that Russia's seen uh, since ninety four. Uh, but it's had some bad might... ones.
1: It's had people gunned down on bridges and stuff. Opposition folks yeah. and.
0: I've been at that bridge on the on the first year anniversary, uh, and that's another case where it's not clear if it was a Brett Kebble murder or or what was really going on there. Um, but but yeah, be care beware of people who presume that this was ordered by Putin. Uh, be careful of people who presume that it wasn't natural causes. Uh, the evidence right now is just contextual, uh, and let's figure it out. Let's look. Let, you know, th- this is an unfolding story, and I think the most important yeah. factor of it right now is the clandestine nature in which his uh, body is being treated i think it would behoove it behooves everyone on the side of justice for there to be more evidence and more light uh on this and not less and i think that if he does die without access being granted to his body then the presumption of um, you know then the circumstantial evidence counts much more against uh the the the, the russian power brokers uh, because if they have nothing to hide why would they not let someone in to
1: see yeah, but for
0: now i'm kind of holding my breath on making a final call on this one
1: mm-hmm. well we will have to see precisely uh what happens um you've got but, a story about know,
0: china which is which i think is similarly yeah.
1: <laughs> ominous but also incomplete yes i've so I've, i you know i i Kind of read some stuff about China every now and again. I'm trying to learn more about China and India. I mean, we've talked about this before on the on the show. Um, so I don't know if our listeners know what a muk mukbang. I think it's pronounced. Um, is a mukbang is like a video that it originates from South Korea, and basically, you watch a person, usually quite an attractive person, eating a lot of food, and they comment on the food. It's it's strange. Um, but they're very popular on YouTube. They've got millions and millions of views. Uh and they've also become increasingly popular in China.
0: Is it many watching beautiful women eat lots of food?
1: Or is it uh, men and no, who- mostly mostly, but it's actually both. It's not there's not an obvious sort of like weird erotic thing going on here. It is it is like a, a you know, so so there's a Korean influencer in this BBC story about this issue. Um uh she she eats uh, she has six million followers on her TikTok. Um and she munches and crunches her way through enormous platters, as the, the news article says. Uh so mukbang so, basically means eating broadcast. Um and some people also just like the sound of other people eating. That's also another kind of weird component to this thing. Anyway. In one, of, in one of many sort of awkward uh, shifts that China has undergone recently, um, there's now talk about banning these videos. Um, Xi Jinping is running a campaign um, called the Clean Plate Campaign, which is seeking to uh, uh, sound the alarm on food waste. Um, which is a very kind of Maoist type of program. And as part of this, uh, China is looking at uh, restricting these videos and possibly banning them in the next few months entirely because they're believed to encourage food waste amongst the Chinese population. There's a lot of... This is but one of many things that have happened in China recently, in the past couple of years, as Xi has tightened his control over the country, as uh, the cult of personality has grown around him, as uh, the... The the, the the actions have been carried out against the Uyghurs in Western China. They've also banned uh, Chinese people from playing, being able to play video games with outsiders. So there's very much a kind of slow creeping cultural strangle stranglehold uh, growing in China. So, I mean, China's always been very restrictive in its, like, access to outside culture. Um, but it it seems to be increasing at the moment. Um, also, uh, Xi Jinping recently gave a speech where he talked about how uh, state ownership and public, u- publicly owned utilities, so basically sort of, you know, like SOEs, uh, are integral to China's economy and they weren't going to be going anywhere and, you know, he's going to p- perhaps even look for a greater role for them in the Chinese economy.
0: Yeah, um, so I find that very worrying. Hey? Because, that's very Because uh, I've looked at... The, I've I've looked at the data, and if you look from when China starts actually reform reforming post Mao, around 1978, uh, its 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 businesses are pre, are 100% publicly owned, and by 2016 2017 it's about 50% privately owned. Uh, so, you know, all of that growth, so much of it comes from private ownership. If you look at yeah. housing. About fifty percent of Chinese housing was uh, privately owned in '78, and today it's about a hundred percent. So yeah. they've they've really, in a lot of ways. So so you know, the great story, well, the great just, myth was that Ch- China's boom was some kind of communist boom. No, it's that an autocratic one-party system at least allowed some private property rights to 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 creep in, and yes, on yes. the back of of that limited free market. Uh, they managed to have a huge success and it always seemed to me that I Don't know. I mean, Deng Deng Xiaoping's line was uh, When it comes to addressing poverty, I don't care, you know, the, poverty is a rat that needs it's a, it's a scourge it needs to be And courteous. I don't care if the cat is black or white as long as it catches the rat I don't care yeah. if, if it sounds like Marx or it sounds like Adam Smith if it catches the rat then it'll do and yeah. Ji ping uh has now sort of formally gone against that and said that the the no. formula for our success has been this and 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 going forward it has to be more of this public ownership and i think that's a very worrying signal in addition with, with to that
1: been, uh the, the, the private sector in china has become increasingly under communist control you yeah, in for so for example like uh a much larger percentage of companies in china as part of their charters of like the founding charter of the company, basically express allegiance to the communist party and how they will be guided by the ordeals ideals of the communist party. So of course, it's a very authoritarian state. So at least a little bit of that is to be expected, but the sort of degree to which uh, private businesses have dedicated themselves to the goals of the party, um, yeah. has, has, and candidate deployments.
0: The, yeah. the, uh, I read a study that showed like the the best predictor of success, for climbing the corporate ladder, is how high you climb up in the Communist Party's ranks.
1: Yes. So um, so when
0: money follows power, it's a problem. Exactly. And and, and just to come back to the cultural point, um, I think that it's uh, Belarus's greatest writer. Uh, Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize two years ago, in part for her book called Secondhand Time, which was a series of interviews, just uh, sort of dinner table conversations one-on-one, put down verbatim with Russians, uh, with Soviets. I I, I think it's the best book that I've read in the last few years. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Um, One of the sort of surprising common lines that she finds from people who sort of you know some some 80 year olds who really lived most of their life in the Soviet Union uh some younger people just sort of asking them what did you think about the 90s after the cold war ended after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and why did it happen the most common line is blue jeans we 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 gave up on communism in exchange for blue jeans and a greater variety of sausages to choose from at the supermarkets <laughs> and the way that they got the idea of blue jeans was from the limited access that they had to the Marlboro Man and John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and uh, so on. The yeah, yeah. the sort of Hollywood cultural affect of, of, of seeing how well people live on the other side and seeing that they don't have access to that choice because of a silly system. Uh, that seems to have been the thing that really broke the camel's back. I mean, that's from one mm-hmm. point of view. Of course, there's the Afghanistan war. Of course, yeah, there's I think the was, collapse of the Fiscus.
1: It, it was also helped, that perception of blue jeans, I think was also perhaps helped a bit by the fact that the Soviet authorities themselves often propagated against jeans as being uh, some, like, immoral, and they would make you go sterile, and they would do all these funny things to you. So And this is what they, you see
0: here in China, is like, okay, yeah. Chinese people
1: are watching South
0: Korean beautiful women eat lots of food. And that might get them thinking, you know, what is it about South Korea? Why? Like, we've had a good time. But, Jesus, South Korea is much richer uh, per capita and has had a much faster growth track and has no poverty. No one goes hungry. No one has to face uh, the kinds of obstacles that we do uh, in South Korea. Uh, to to growing an enterprise, growing a family, uh, how did they get it right? Why aren't they worried about And Why don't they have Uyghurs and so on? And and, yeah. some of, and some of those questions are sort of silly because there are existential differences between China and South Korea, fundamental differences to do with size. Uh, but some of it will, you know, I think there's a blue jeans effect that they're trying to curtail. And this leads me to my, my fiancé's uh, grandmother, who I mentioned on a, a podcast a year ago when I yes, just come yes. back from Russia, who said... Uh, she She hankers after the Soviet Union, um, and she said, "You know, if only we'd managed to hold on for another ten years, we would have had the internet and computers <laughs> at a cost effective rate, and we could have kept the system going if we If we had that, we would have been able to shape people 's thoughts in a way that would have made the Soviet Union sustainable and that is a huge difference between China and the USSR China has the advantage." Basically, of a more effective bureaucracy, and technologies that allow it to ramify power into bedrooms. It's it's much more Orwellian.
1: Yes, yes, they're they're able to to reach into absolutely every part of, of people's lives. I mean, uh, and this is something that if you if you want to sort of horrify yourself, go and read about precisely how the Uyghurs in uh, in western China. Have been tracked and oppressed. Um, basically, every aspect of their lives is documented. How often they go to mosque, whether they associate with anyone who goes to mosque, and they have these sort of large algorithms Bages. that keep track of everyone. And um, people who are just seen to give, you know, three of the four signs of being too uh, Muslim, um, just get thrown straight into one of the camps. Yeah, if you change so the Yeah. It's exactly. exactly. Uh, and, and you also, you know, just being quiet is not even good enough. Um, lack of yeah. social media posting can get you flagged by their systems uh, to to basically be uh, put under a watch and possibly even punished. So it's, it is a nightmare. Um, and, and China has been able to utilize this new technology in a very terrifying way that uh, I think we should be very concerned about. Something else we should be concerned about a little bit, and this is just a tangent. We can change topics after of this. But um I read something very disturbing about how Taiwan appears to have just kind of given up fighting, uh, actually fighting against China in a military sense. So what do I mean by that? So the Taiwanese make a big show of kind of blustering. I think the anti-China party is currently in power there. Um, And they often buy high tech stuff from the US, you know, they bought tanks recently and they like to buy missiles and jets and stuff. But the problem is they've actually massively neglected their army. They spent a lot of a lot of money on arms, basically buying arms from the U.S., kind of for diplomatic relations reasons. Um, but the army itself is quite underfunded. Uh, its logistics units are in total sham. There was a scandal recently because a Taiwanese soldier hung himself after being expected by his superiors to out of his own pocket pay for supplies, uh, basically parts to fix tanks and things. Um, so I, the, the the takeaway I got from that article was that Taiwan basically thinks that it can play a sort of diplomatic game here in fending off China and that mili- and military spending is is a bit useless. But I think that's actually a bit silly. So forgive me, because for, this is a very sort of amateurish opinion. I'm not a military commander. But from what I understand, Taiwan is actually an incredibly defensible place. Um and i think that they're being foolish by thinking that the they can throw all of their eggs in the america will defend us basket which is what they appear to be doing currently um i think rather they would they should probably strengthen the defenses of taiwan because that's actually going to be the key here is if taiwan manages to hold out against a prospective prc invasion um so that people's people's republic of china invasion which is looking increasingly likely i must say there's been a lot more saber rattling by the chinese um about reincorporating yeah by taiwan. beijing yeah um by beijing rather yes because they, they're both chinese um <laughs> uh and i think that the crucial factor is actually going to be how long taiwan lasts because if taiwan falls in 3 days to a chinese invasion it's going to be a feat accompli, and the americans are probably just going to give it up They have their own problems. They're completely self-absorbed right now with, you know, everything that's going on there. They're crazy politics. So I could very easily see a President Biden or President Trump just sort of ignoring uh, Chinese invasion of Taiwan and issuing a strong condemnation at the UN and then just sort of giving up, Um, which would not be good for for freedom or democracy in the world. And it would would seriously mark the rise of China and the collapse of of democracy in the East. Uh, So I think... That's something that the Taiwanese should definitely get on. Anyway. Hey, from
0: Taiwan to South Korea. Yes. Uh, I uh, I just read a story about South Korea that I wanted to share over lunch. Uh, the context being that South Korea really is my favorite country. I uh, <laughs> like, uh, Around this time last year... Um, as the blossoms started coming out in joburg I, I started feeling hopeful and uh started wondering where I'd like to move if I were to leave South Africa for a year or two to study and uh I looked at applying to some South Korean universities uh I think that it's uh it's 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 it, it's just had the fastest growth of creativity dynamic value add uh culturally it's It's got this wonderful thing right of, at the same time, at once preserving a lot of interesting traditions and cuisine and dancing styles and so on, and being at the forefront of uh, contemporary global sort of cultural waves. K-pop is something I've been listening to since 2011, and I'm far from alone. Gangnam he's, Style was the most the first fun YouTube video about. to
1: pierce a billion yep, views. Two, a billion views, yeah. Um man, I remember going style. Their art scene seems like, is seems crazy. Like so long ago.
0: Their fine art scene is crazy interesting. <laughs> I can imagine.
1: Uh here's a here's a fun fact about them. Here's uh, and I, I wonder if you know the answer to this. What's the largest religion in South Korea? So it's Christianity, which is what my story yeah. is about. Ah, okay. So sorry I was cutting you off there. <laughs>
0: no. So um and uh, and uh, really, the secret to success, uh, I think, is best captured in two words. Tsimal Undong. Uh, it's a South Korean phrase which has sort of guided them since the, uh, uh, the Christian agrarian movement started under Japanese colonization in the 20s. Uh, where South, When South Korea was much poorer than poor South Africa and uh, then the poorest parts of South Africa. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, oppressed by, uh, an inglorious and war ravaged. And And they said, you know, you know, what's going to get you ahead? uh, hard work and faith in, in, uh, oneself and in other human and and in being able to bring out the better angels of other people's nature by setting a good example. And I just think that there's something romantic about that, which can be easy to deride. But when you look at what they've actually achieved, it's super concrete uh, mm. It's super high tech. It's super amazing. Uh, the and biggest so,
1: ship manufacturer in the world, I believe.
0: Yep, fastest internet. Oh. Uh, they yeah they most they, educated crashing.
1: population. Yeah. I think in terms of university degrees.
0: It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And and I mean and the glorious story is the thing about South Korea. For more background to the story is that it hasn't been a straightforward road. Uh, between the sort of post World War II. Uh, they get invaded by, uh, by by North Korea and the Chinese. there's this epic battle between the capitalist and the communist forces there. Uh, basically the Americans get driven back they lose Seoul uh, and uh, Ridgeway is one of Victor Davis Hansen's sort of five great generals uh of history or eight great generals of history the, the american general who goes in there and 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 victor davis hansen makes the argument that that really without that one man kind of the the tide of history would they 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 were losing and they would have lost uh but they no. managed to turn it around he he makes the case for that uh i, I won't get into that case but it's fascinating um w- uh, maybe on another podcast we'll talk about it um but so after that saul is flattened uh uh, industrial capacity is zero. Uh, literacy, illiteracy is above sixty percent. Uh, you know, it's it's really it's really uh, an s-hole country. And then they have a couple of political assassinations of the next couple of, of the next three leaders. Series of revolts first by the universities, then by uh, kind of industrialist-funded. Um, Worker types, worker union types, and then the third one, I can't even remember. They only really become democratic in the sense that we had accept in the 90s. They only really get a consensual government. Mm. And almost as soon as that happens, they go bankrupt. Well, they have a balance of payments, bankruptcy, and so they have to get a bailout from the IMF. And then there's this beautiful moment, which really uh, is the kind of thing that I wish all South Africans would know. When they got their IMF loan, much larger than ours, they were supposed to pay it back in five years. They paid it back in three and that's because there was a massive drive amongst ordinary South Koreans to take any bit of jewelry you have and go and melt it down <laughs> and give it as gold to the government to pay back the loan. Dude, it makes me weep up every time I think of this story. The Like, they raised tons and tons of gold from millions of south koreans going with their wedding bands and that one sort of necklace that granny had passed down to grandchild and now there was a granny Mm -hmm. and she was giving it in dude they just loved their country so much and they hated the idea of of being in hock to someone else but they didn't blame the imf for insisting on paying back the loan they were like No, here's what we have to do. We have to pay back the loan. We have to work harder. We have to work smarter. And we have to give up our luxuries to pay back the loan. It's amazing what they did. And then after that, because they had a very heavy SOE system and then they privatized it, but privatization doesn't always go perfectly well. Uh, so there was some sort of kleptocracy. There were some uh, deals that were being done between politicians and tenderpreneurs, effectively, which uh, made South Koreans very irritated. And then they had these these sort of umbrella protests where millions of people hit the streets every Saturday uh, because you don't go protest on a weekday uh, <laughs> yes, while it's you're some supposed to work. excuse to go work. <laughs> <laughs> For four months every Saturday, like a million people hit the streets of Seoul and protest and then guess what the last two prime ministers or presidents are both uh, uh found guilty under house arrest or uh, you know imprisoned at home and, and one imprisoned in a proper jail uh and so it's just really quick turn, turn around time on that on that good stuff so south korea great place not because everything came easy but because when they had challenges they faced them down yeah and he has a really interesting example of a strange challenge uh which will resonate i think uh, with, with anyone who follows politics in the Anglosphere, uh, the Sarong Jail Church is at the center of the most recent coronavirus outbreak. So, the first major, you know, South Korea has done really well. Very few deaths, very few cases, a lot of contact tracing, closed their borders almost immediately, uh, all the good stuff. Uh know no, the lesson uh,
1: of not trusting the People's Republic of China.
0: <laughs> yes, or the WHO. Uh, and they also, they didn't lock down their economy, uh, insofar as they did lock it down, it was, it was very brief, um, but mostly they left it up to people's volition to figure out how you want to combat the virus, excepting for the government closing the borders and doing the testing and closing Mm -hmm. schools temporarily. And people's volition, they, they, they pulled off the trick, excepting at these churches. So the first big outbreak was at a church and this is the second big outbreak at a church. And, uh, the Reverend June Kwang Hoon, Said that President Moon has terrorized our church with the Wuhan virus. So the church's theory is that uh, there were hand sanitizers being handed out that actually had the coronavirus in the hand sanitizer. Ah. (laughs) They said we smelt it. And it did not smell like sanitizer, it smelt like chemicals. And. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, hold on. And then someone said, when we go get tested elsewhere and do not mention that we are a member of the congregation, we test neg- We would test negative. Uh, but when we get tested by the government and we admit that we are in the congregation, then we come out positive. I would say there is a fabrication. Okay. Uh, so I can think of no other reason than that this is a plot to kill Sarang Jail Church uh, by increasing the number of confirmed cases. Who's behind the plot? Moon Jae-in, the president. So uh, the church is calling this a terror attack. Uh, to we ignored the it.
1: atmosphere that has very, very silly conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, so they've got these, like, kind of... Uh,
0: I mean, in, in in Reuters, this church group is described as ultra-right-wing. I have no
1: idea what that means. Um, yeah, in a South Korean context, it seems not very useful. <laughs> that just, that just <laughs> sounds
0: like way of saying we don't like them. Um but uh, this pastor, Jun Kwang Hoon, is a political figure. He has uh, <laughs> he's stoking this theory that the government, you know, I don't know. It just sounds like 5G making you gay. It's like, <laughs> 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 it's like and here's the thing that I love about the South Koreans. I bet that it's, again, it's not the case that their esteem economy is without people getting likes, chasing likes by punting crazy theories. Uh, it's rather the case that when this happens consistently in the past, and I think this will be true in this case too, they deal with it the right way, right? Yeah. They check the fact they've got a very transparent system, and then when they when you see that the guy's ridiculous, they laugh it off, and they won't like yeah. hold on to this like the KKK. Uh, you know, sometimes the American media act as if the KKK has a million members uh, to try and milk a story. Sort of
1: five guys in a garage somewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they make it out to be more powerful than it really is. So I, 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 I'm willing to bet anyone a bottle of wine that in a month's time, South Korean press is going to be sort of past this story, having had a bit of a serious look and a lot of a laugh, and uh, and 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 life will go on. And I, uh, I don't know. Just while it's in a mo- bit of a moment of madness, I think it's nice drawing attention to it.
1: Yes, um, to we should probably. You know what we should probably talk about next time is the uh, weird American conspiracy theory uh, about QAnon. I don't think we have time to properly go into it here because we've only got about sort of five, six minutes left. Um, But um, (laughs) I think the the big American conspiracy
0: theory uh, uh, that got some further, you know, I I, I should just say, I I, I never use conspiracy theory as, as a term of disparagement. Uh, you can't understand any of Roman history. You can't understand South Korea's history. You can't you can't understand history unless you understand that there are conspiracies, and often they are true. Uh, there are real conspiracies out there to seize power.
1: Um, yeah, so I would Vladimir, say sometimes, not often.
0: Well, okay, yeah, it depends on how you count, often or sometimes. But uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin conspired with the Germans uh, yes. to go back to Russia, for example. Brutus conspired uh, to assassinate Julius Caesar, and so on. So the, the big American conspiracy theory, one of the big ones is that uh, the probe into Russia Gate, that the FBI's investigation into potential collusion between Trump and Putin was itself driven by political agendas, guys falsified evidence, and uh, basically concocted a fake case, a hoax. And, uh, you know, some guys believe it wholeheartedly. Some guys think this is a deep state conspiracy theory that's just laughable and you shouldn't look at it. Uh, But today, or on Wednesday, uh, one of the FBI investigators pled guilty to falsifying evidence in a visa warrant application. Uh, so those guys who are critical of this are going to be very keen on that but there is the open question of whether this guilty plea is going to be used in the way that um, the whole theory behind the Trump investigation is that you you got a few guilty pleas from pretty sort of strange characters who pled guilty to sort of campaign finance violation before Trump, uh, you know, to, to having shady business uh, yeah. in the Eastern
1: Bloc. They were shady guys long before they associated with Trump, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh,
0: and so the thought yeah. was you get them to plead guilty to that, uh, or, you, or you show that they're guilty for that, and then you flip them. You get re- you you exchange, you do a deal where they get reduced sentences exchanged for and then uh, going to business against Trump. And now the question is, is the same thing going to happen under, you know, the, Is the Durham investigation going to go the same way? Uh, And it does look a bit like that's not going to happen.
1: Which is unfortunate. It's pretty standard for for American prosecutors. They're like a lot of their justice system is built on the idea of uh, that in order to battle organized crime, this is where most of these things originate from. You you catch someone for something small and then sort of smash them with it. Like uh, Al Capone was was the bit, the most famous example of that they caught him for tax evasion and then once they had taken him down they were able to pick off other people in his organization and get them to flip to give more evidence and stuff yeah um yeah
0: so so in this case it seems um th- this is we're talking about Kevin Kleinsmith uh who falsified the evidence in the Pfizer uh uh warrant application it's. I'm kind of. I'm disturbed at the prospect of 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 no pressure being applied against him to turn state witness.
1: Hmm. Uh, well, the the fo- the falsifying stuff is the important
0: part. Right, but so the, but but the but the open question remains whether, and how, and what kind of contacts he had with Lisa Page, Peter Strzok. Yeah.
1: How how Potter. big was the conspiracy theory? Was it rogue people acting kind of? Uh, almost individually, because they all had personal biasy bias. Or, uh, you see, when talking it,
0: about American politics, you think there can yeah. be rogue agents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, just not in Russia. Is, no, no. Okay, firstly, I didn't disagree with you. And secondly, <laughs> it is a liberal system, which does allow for a lot more independence of action. Correct. Correct. Out? <laughs> um, but yeah. No, it's it's.
0: I, think, I just I want think transparency. I, w- I want the best. I want the best yeah. evidence for and against to be publicly available because because the speculation kind of gets under my skin. It kind of irritates me after a certain point when people have very strong convictions about exactly what happened, without very strong evidence to support it. Where the evidence is mm. circumstantial and based on motivations. You're motivated to do this. You're motivated to do that. Therefore, you did it. That's just not a. That's just a illiberal way of thinking.
1: Oh I think that's that's pretty much correct um, anyway I think we are I think we are at the hour mark now, so is there anything final you want to uh, recommend to anyone uh you go first okay, so you thing saying there about South Korea and how it had this transition to democracy um, reminded me of uh, a chapter in the book by P. J. ORourke uh, Holidays in Hell. He's a sort of libertarian journalist who wrote these pretty fun books. He's very books. funny. He's, He's so funny. funny.
0: Parliament of Halls um, is hilarious. That's his sort of takedown of kind of like
1: bipartisan uselessness in
0: Congress. Yes, and the, yes, yes. And Clinton and
1: Bush. Uh, it's, it's, and so he wrote "Holidays in Hell in the 80s, where basically it was a collection of stories where he went to like hot spots in the world in the 1980s. Um And the best part of of the most memorable line of that entire book to me was when he goes to South Korea and it's during the sort of end end years of the dictatorship in South Korea in the 1980s. And he goes to a student riot and he mentions that during the entire student riot, the bathrooms were spotless, (laughs) even as the students were throwing tiles off the roof at approaching riot police and that kind of thing. Anyway, it's a great book. It's got lots of great funny lines in it. Um, and I'd highly recommend that you take a look. Take a look at it. It is quite old um, now. Uh, it, it's it's sort of a bit of a blast for the past because it is very rooted in its time, uh, in the eighties. Uh, he also visits South Africa as one of the places in, in hell that he mentions there. So that's also worth reading just because it's kind of a weird memory of, of how things once were. Anyway, uh, what do you have, Carol? So, um,
0: mine is, James Kudzir. I uh one of the reasons I came to the office today was to scan in an essay by James Kotsier uh that I talked about at the Liberal Club that the Institute of Race Relations runs a couple of weeks ago. Uh so 2 months ago there was kind of a meme going around Facebook that uh, James Kotsier died. News reports of his death were premature. Uh <laughs> but I just saw uh one of my friends share like uh oh James Kutsir RIP. Uh, this morning, um, and the essay, I, I, it's hard to say my favorite essay, uh, by J.M. Kutseer. He's obviously very well known as a novelist, but he's like arguably the best sort of literary critic in the last 40 years because he writes in a super clear style. I mean, if you've read his novels, you know that it's, you know, the sentences are not too long. The words are not too big. He's not into verbiage. He's really into clarity. And that is such a useful uh, tonic to the gin that's been poured all over literary criticism by kind of French deconstructivists who uh, flabbergast you with strange neologisms I, that make I no must, sense upon
1: must we, scrutiny. We, we, we must do a, an anti-deconstructionist episode at some point, do I think they are. anyway that's that's for another day so
0: okay, but so 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 maybe I'll save up uh the the description of my favorite essay for next week, uh but I'll just say that it is about Paul Celan, who is probably the greatest poet of the holocaust and and it and it takes a mind like Kutziers uh to take a cold light to hell itself through the eyes of this poet, and find something human worth holding on to. Uh, it's uh, it's really, you know, we joke about this being the winter of our discontent and uh, and obviously we're very comfortable. Uh, and I think that the the it, it is at times like this where there's there's something rewarding about, um reading the most resolute and brightest minds who survived and didn't survive uh the world 's harshest times um, no. to 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 hold on to that as a pebble in the stone or or as a pebble in the shoe to 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 the complacency uh that one might feel in this kind of fatalistic i feel very you know uh, i I feel a strong atta- attraction to fatalism right now you know the news in South <laughs> Africa is just the same story every grim, day though. Someone mm. stole something someone broke something someone 's too stupid to do their job uh and we 're all very poor
1: it's like, all nice
0: things that is the that is the that 's the headline every day and it can kind of make it seem as if as if humans uh don 't get their act together in new ways that are better or worse and i think uh i think we're at a t-junction in our history in this country uh i don't i don't think we can survive i don't think we can keep going on this sort of very mediocre slow descent thing for for much longer um i i think
1: uh it does does feel a little bit like the minecart is picking up some speed here
0: yeah so so anyway I'll, uh, you know, check out check out Christine's essay on on Paul Solan or listen in next time, and I'll and I'll speak to it if, if Nick lets me.
1: <laughs> All right, if he everyone, doesn't punish me
0: for he for saying that for 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 sounding like an apologist for Putin, which I'm certainly not. Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> I get a bit suspicious sometimes. No, no, no. I'm totally. I'm. I'm not in favor of Putin. But you must understand that he's. You know, he's dealing with a very complicated system, and yeah, yeah. He is. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's, guys. Let's that's it, so it for
0: us today. Good. Have a have a have a have a good week, and uh, yeah, have a
1: great weekend, everyone.
0: Yeah. Keep curious. <laughs>